Welcome to Parallax by Anchor Calra, a podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology and the best from the US Cardiology Review. Published every second Monday, Anchor Calra, MD, interventional cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, USA, speaks with legendary cardiologists, reviews late-breaking trials and interviews authors of our latest and best US cardiology review articles. We call them hashtag audio articles. Parallax is the effect whereby the position or direction of an object appears to differ when viewed from different positions. So this podcast is your fix of reliable updates on all things cardiology by someone from a non-traditional background who is always looking at the industry from a new angle. Now, here's your host, Anka Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Parallax. Um, this is a very special episode. Um, I, I think it's for the first time uh, we have three guests uh, all together uh, in a show. And, uh, you know, for uh, the supporters of women in medicine, this is an all women show. So I happen to be the only man as I'm the odd one out. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I have the um, honor of having uh, with me uh, doctors Morse, Eberly and Pat uh, on, on the show. I'm going to introduce each one of them. So Michelle Morse is uh, assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, um, my alma mater, and uh, she is uh, the founding co-director of Equal Health. Uh, Lauren Eberly is a cardiology fellow at uh, University of Pennsylvania. Um, Lauren, uh, I've actually lived in Philadelphia for three years when I was doing my internal medicine residency at Cooper University Hospital in Camden, New Jersey. And uh, we have Arthi Bhatt. Uh, Dr. Bhatt is um, assistant professor of medicine at University of Minnesota Medical School. So Arthi, I've actually lived in Minneapolis for three years when I did my, oh, my wow. cardiology fellowship uh, in, in the Twin Cities at Hennepin and at Abbott Northwestern Hospital. So, you know, with, with that introduction, I, I've actually lived in all three of your respective cities, you know, Boston, Philadelphia, and Minneapolis. Nice. So with that, welcome on the show and thank you for your time. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thrilled to be here. Um, so um, I'm going to start by asking each one of you your career path. Uh, Michelle, why don't we start with you? Sure. Yeah, no, happy to start. And I'll, I'll be brief. Uh, my, my path in this work has taken lots and lots of twists and turns. But um, I think the most important place to start is growing up in, in West Philadelphia um, and going to public schools in Philly my whole life, where uh, my dad being a funeral home director in West Philly and my mom being a public school teacher, um, that childhood experience um, made inequity obvious to me from a very young age. Um, and I was, I was very lucky, I think, also to have parents who um, made sure that I understood the historical roots of inequity um, through various ways, be it going on, you know, summer field trips to plantations in the South or going to African-American history museums. Um, so I, I feel very, very lucky that I had parents for whom um, understanding inequity was a, was a, a early part of my childhood. But um, it was actually, believe it or not, um, my time uh, as a first year medical student at University of Penn in West Philadelphia that I think also really helped me to understand 
the connection between inequity and health. I had always done activism work kind of outside of my studies um, as a student and, and finally really saw as a first year medical student how to bring those two things uh, together more concretely. And part of that was learning about the AIDS movement and being a part of the, the AIDS movement. And part of it was also just being back home in West Philadelphia and seeing uh, the, the crazy, unjust, unfair, avoidable um, differences in outcomes for Black folks from West Philly um, compared to other folks. And that persists to this day, despite University of Penn having been in West Philly for many, many decades now, um, we haven't seen the population health changes that I would expect with an institution like that um, present in West Philly. And, and then that brings me really, I think, to uh, up to now, kind of with that context for me, I think as a medical student, as a resident in internal medicine and global health equity and primary care at Brigham and Women's, um, you know, my childhood and upbringing really set the path um, for me to be heavily involved in this kind of work. And I will just mention also that um, the global health uh, component for me came in um, as I really started to understand as a medical student um, what was happening with the HIV movement from a clinical perspective and, and got to spend time in Botswana, where in 2006, the life expectancy of people in Botswana was 36 years. Um, and that was not just about HIV. That was about all of the social and structural inequities. That was about colonialism and imperialism and everything else. Um, and I really got to see that up close and personal as a, as a young medical student. And that, that really shaped a lot of my path. Um, and then I'll just mention lastly that in 2010, um, I, I, was not in Haiti at the time, but uh, January 2010 was the earthquake um, in Haiti that unfortunately led to the loss of over 300,000 lives and, and really forever changed the, the path of the nation. Um, despite Haiti having been one of the most important countries in history, um, the only place where a successful revolt against uh, a system of slavery had happened, and it was the first independent Black Republic in Latin America. So it's a, a very important country in our world's history of oppression and inequity. Um, and yet this earthquake completely upended every aspect of life. Um, and so with some amazing, amazing colleagues, I don't know if we're allowed to curse on this podcast, Dr. Calroy, you'll have to tell us, but with some amazing uh, colleagues, we started an organization called Equal Health that was really focused on what our friends and colleagues in Haiti were telling us was necessary, which was a complete revolution in the system of educating health providers uh, across the country uh, because so much had been lost after the earthquake. And I had had the honor of visiting uh, and working in Haiti in 2009 with an organization called Partners in Health, or Zami La Santé is the Haitian uh, sister organization. And so I had already kind of gotten engaged in the work there and, and the earthquake really changed everything. So um, our uh, what you'll hear about a little later um, is our campaign against racism. It's, it's a part of uh, an advocacy platform of equal health and, and I think really helps uh, to make some of what we're talking about today more granular and more action oriented. So I'll stop there. Well, you know, what a what an amazing introduction and, and what a career path. Congratulations on everything that you've accomplished. Um, Arti, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah. So um, in some ways, like Michelle, um, the reason that I'm doing the work that I'm doing today has a lot to do with my childhood. So I'll just say that I 
Um, I grew up actually in a, a fairly small, predominantly white, predominantly Christian town in Wisconsin, but my parents are Indian immigrants who grew up in East Africa and Kenya. So from a young age, um, there was a lot of different influences in my life, Indian, African, and then also, you know, um, kind of an outsider identity for where I grew up. And so a lot of my childhood and adolescence was sort of negotiating all these different identities. And um, in that, realizing that there were a lot of inequities in the way that people were treated and also just examining some of, you know, my own privilege. Um, so growing up, I was always encouraged to just ask why. And that actually led me to do my undergraduate at Marquette University in Milwaukee, which um, where I learned about concepts like social justice and liberation theology, um, but also was like embedded in this um, liberal arts institution that was in the sort of middle of one of the most segregated cities in the country. And um, so again, the, the, that dissonance was there and probed me to continue to ask why. Um, so um, when I started doing my residency in internal medicine and pediatrics, I did med-peds residency at the University of Minnesota. Um, I actually, at that point, got connected with um, someone named Michael Westerhouse, who is an internist and medical anthropologist who does work with Michelle Morse, um, and uh, was teaching a course called Social um, Sochmed, Social Medicine in Northern Uganda. Um, and I was able to go to Northern Uganda and spend a lot of time learning about the sort of upstream factors that lead to health inequities sort of in the context of um, the historical context of Northern Uganda. And um, yeah, and through that, it just sort of blossomed into this um, career of knowing that sort of I was called and had an obligation to use whatever privilege I have to address structural inequity. Um, and so right now, I actually, um, I did a, a chief year in global health, where I was um, doing a lot of med medical resident education. And then after that, working in Tanzania. And then since then, I've been a primary care provider at a federally qualified health center in Minneapolis, where we take care of predominantly um, predominantly non-English speaking immigrant and refugee patients, um, uninsured and underinsured patient populations, and really some of the people that are uh, most affected by health inequities. And um, I help with um, the campaign against racism and um, I help run the, the Minnesota chapter of the campaign against racism, which is a, a community organizing arm of that. And I'm also on the board of an organization called Minnesota Doctors for Health Equity, which is really pushing physicians to uh, be active citizens in their community. Well, you know, great. Uh, thanks again for sharing uh, such a vivid background. Um, you know, what has already amazed me about, uh, you know, both you, uh, both you and, and Michelle is, you know, the depth of global exposure uh, you both have had. And, um, you know, having lived in Minneapolis for three years, I know uh, the inner city population uh, is very diverse. Uh, there is uh, a significant Somali population, uh, right? And uh, Absolutely. 60% of the population I take care of in my clinic is actually Somali. Yeah. And, um, you know, when I was at Hennepin, uh, what was very rewarding and refreshing for me, too, was, you know, just uh, uh, encounter the, the amount of languages 
um, that we required help with uh, with uh, interpreters, uh, inter- medical interpreters uh, for for patients who were being hospitalized at the county hospital. Um, and then I, I did work with uh, Ron Johansson, who's a cardiolog- interventional cardiologist at Hennepin. Uh, I think he has since retired, but is fairly active, is still very active in his in his role at, at Global Health, uh, I believe at the University of Minnesota still, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. Did you happen to work with Ron Johansson? Oh, yeah. I know Ron very well. He, yep, he's, still, he's still doing a lot of global health work. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when, when you run into him next, you know, say hello and, um, and greetings and regards. Um, Lauren, t- tell us a bit more about yourself. Yeah, great. I think similar to, to both others that I think my childhood as well as my global health experience have really had a big impact on my career decisions and, and my path. So I grew up actually in New Mexico, initially in Santa Fe and then Albuquerque, um, where I think similarly, just early on, the effects of poverty on health were very apparent. And so, you know, very early on, I was interested in either a career in public health or global health. Um, and during undergraduate, actually spent quite a bit of time after graduation living in rural Guatemala, um, working primarily in the maternal and fetal medicine field. Um, but that's when I decided to become a doctor, given just an incredible need that I saw there. Um, so I returned to New Mexico for medical school and then decided to go to Brigham and Women's for residency, particularly for their global health equity program, knowing that that was really what I wanted to focus my career on. and. That's where I met Michelle. Um, And so during my residency time there, I spent quite a a large portion of time working with partners in health, predominantly in Rwanda, but also in West Africa and Liberia. Um, And, you know, worked on a multitude of projects to improve health equity and focusing on health system strengthening for really the most vulnerable populations. And it's actually abroad is where I fell in love with cardiology. given just an incredible amount of cardiovascular disease burden that I saw that was actually unexpected prior to to going there. And, you know, similar to as Michelle mentioned, I think as I came back, you know, I'd go abroad for a few months and then would come back to Boston and found a lot of the same issues and a lot of unjust inequities that were so pervasive and the structural racism was so pervasive. And so I think more recently, I've really focused on taking some of those lessons and tools learned abroad to focus more on combating and dismantling structural inequities here in the U.S. So I'm hoping to be um, a general cardiologist um, with focus on improving health equity, uh, particularly in cardiology and cardiovascular care, where I think it's it's needed everywhere, but particularly, I think, in this field um, and remain active in the campaign against racism uh, with, with Michelle and Arthi. Well, you know, great. Uh, thank you for that in- introduction. Um, I-, I think we should just dive right in b- because I-, I really am curious to learn more about this. Um, we obviously, all of us have, have seen it, um, maybe felt it subtly, but, you know, I, I-, I think I- I'm intrigued by, you know, all the three of you having, um, you know, um, taken this as a career path uh, and, you know, focusing on um, you know, both the clinical as well as the research, uh, as well as the healthcare delivery aspects of, you know, racism uh, in in healthcare. Um, so, uh, Michelle, why don't why don't I start with you? And maybe this is a good time to bring up uh, the manuscript that, that uh, you all worked on and published. Um, so, uh, yeah, please please educate us on, on this uh, topic, Michelle. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, we were so excited that you're interested in hearing more about it. And um, as you said, it's a, this is a, a moment where um, consciousness is just really being opened up in a way that is so exciting, although it's obviously disturbing that it's because of mass death um, from COVID-19. But there really is a, a window, I would say, of, of opportunity for learning and for action. Um, and that's the only way that we can I think, make sense and find meaning in the loss that we're all witnessing and experiencing right now is by using this moment to um, to say that we're not going to go back to the normal that was going to lead to not just climate catastrophe, but um, ongoing, um, profound um, generational inequity in life expectancy, in outcomes, in just about every social indicator you can think of. So I, I do really see this as a, a tragedy, but also a, a time where we have to really be deciding as a community of health providers that we're not going to go back to the normal that was inequitable, unjust, and and very uh, painful to uphold. So um, I'll, I'll be brief because I know I, I, re I really hope that RT can talk a bit about the campaign against racism as well. And I know Lauren um, is, has so much to say about the, the manuscript that you mentioned, but I'll, I'll just start by saying that I think um, starting with the definition definition of racism is really important, especially for health providers. Um, and a lot of the work that we did at Brigham and Women's Hospital in the health equity committee that I co-chaired was very much about that, starting with a definition. And I have to shout out Abby Ortiz and Denny Butler Mackey and Tom Kiefer from Southern Jamaica Plain Health Center, who really helped us to do this work um, and helped to bring um, an anti-racist analysis to the Department of Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Um, and so the definition of racism that we have been using is um, Dr. Kamara Jones's definition, and it's one that hopefully everyone who's listening will go and look up. Um, all of you should read The Gardener's Tale that Dr. Jones published in the American, the Journal of the American Public Health Association back in like 2001 or 2002 or something like that. Um, and her definition of racism is really simple. It's, it's basically, it is, it's about who gets access to opportunity and who doesn't. And it's about the fact that um, racism is a system and not a person. Um, it's a system of structuring opportunity um, based on what we socially assign as race, because as we hopefully are all becoming uh, clear on, race is a social construct, not a biological construct. And the fact that that is not taught clearly in medical school and in other schools um, is a big part of the reason that health providers are so confused about how racism is operating in health and healthcare systems. Um, and so that definition is, is simple. Um, and, and it basically makes clear that in just about every indicator that you're going to look at across the U.S., um, uh, and we could talk more about what this looks like in global systems as well, but in the U.S., it's, uh, it's a system of white supremacy where white health outcomes are on top um, in just about every, every category. And we could talk more about the specifics of that. Um, but over 400 years, 500 years of colonialism, settler colonialism specifically in the U.S., as well as um, slavery and structural racism, um, that has not just permeated um, the health experiences, but it has shaped the entire structure of our society. And so healthcare is not a space that's immune from that, even though I do feel like 
um, well-meaning um, and and just beautiful, beautiful people flock to healthcare, which is is wonderful. Um, but we are not immune to the society that we live in and the way that opportunity um, and access to opportunity is structured in our society. And that plays out in, in lots of ways. So that's the definition that I think is useful. Um, and then I'll just say briefly kind of how that led to um, the, the manuscript, um, and then we can come back to the campaign against racism um, in, in RT's comments, perhaps. But the, the manuscript um, that we put out just last fall is basically um, the result of a few years of work. Um, a lot of what was happening at the time when our health equity committee was, was started um, was the early um, beginnings of the movement for Black Lives, the Black Lives Matter movement. And what we started to see, I, I was an assistant program director at the time in our internal medicine residency. Um, and the residents in our program were saying, you know, we have to respond to this. Um, the, the Black Lives Matter movement is happening inside our institution, too. It's not just happening out there in society. And what are we going to do about it? Um, and thank God they asked those questions because that spurred a, a whole new conversation within our institution. And I think it's also important to recognize that social movements have always influenced institutions to make the change that has been long overdue. And our Health Equity Committee was not the first health equity committee Brigham and Women's had ever had. You know, we were reviving work that had been done uh, for, for many decades, uh, but ebbed and flowed with the interests uh, of, of folks at the institution. Um, so when that call to action really came from residents, um, the health equity committee that I co-chaired really said, well, we need to show how racism at a structural level is happening within our institution, within our own walls, and not just out there in the streets. It's happening in here, too. And so how can we do that? And, and some of the early ideas uh, were... Well, we notice that if you're black or brown and you have heart failure, you tend to end up on the general medicine service rather than on the specialized cardiology service. Um, and it just so happens also that our cardiology service is in a very, very beautiful, um, recently built um, building um, that has private rooms, that is the kind of place where you would want everyone to get dignified care. Um, but of course, it's a limited resource and there are only but so many beds. And so because of that anecdotal experience of residents and attendings, we said, well, let's actually look into that. Let's get the data and see if this theory or this observation is, is true, if it plays out. And I think a big part of the reason we wanted to do that also was because it was an opportunity to work across departments because the triage decisions from the emergency department include cardiology, they include general medicine, they include the emergency department leadership, uh, clinicians rather. So, um, so it was a, also a great way to get more people involved in the work of examining health equity and racial justice within our own walls. And we started as a committee from a point of having that definition of racism from Dr. Kamara Jones that I mentioned, and also assuming that racism was operating in our institution. We did not set out to say we need to show that structural racism is happening here. We started from a point of structural racism is happening here. What are the examples? And then how do we start to address those inequities that we uncover? Um, so I'll just pass, pass it over to Lauren to talk maybe a little bit more about what the study findings were. Uh, yes, uh, Lauren, why don't you uh, share what these study findings were? And, you know, just at the outset, I, I mean... You know, just 
the, the sheer idea of uh, examining and um, investigating and scientifically reporting um, this subject is, is just fascinating to me. So just congratulations for, uh, you know, pushing the envelope. And, you know, Lauren, why, why don't you tell us what, what you found? Yeah, I think, you know, as Michelle mentioned, you know, for our work, for kind of our guiding methodology, we've really, really leaned on and utilized the public health critical race praxis approach. Um, and, you know, I, I encourage people to look more into that as well. But just as Michelle said, we started from a point um, which is kind of grounded in that methodology that this racism is pervasive and it's everywhere. And so we will find it. And I think that's just important to note because I think there's a lot of discomfort with these topics in academic centers. So if we start from a point um, saying that it's everywhere, it's pervasive, um, but to really combat it, we have to be comfortable. We have to be race conscious and we have to ask ourselves, how does racism operate here? And constantly day by day say, how is racism operating in my contemporary context? And so I think this study is just a beautiful example of how staff doing just that. Um, you know, we as house staff and clinicians have a really unique vantage point where day in, day out, we're witnessing firsthand systemic inequities and their effects. So as house staff, we were, we work on both the cardiology and the medicine service. And it became readily apparent, just as Michelle mentioned, that our black and Latinx patients were heart failure, were not getting admitted to cardiology for their care, but rather to general medicine. Um, so what we did is we took, um, a we did a retrospective chart review of all heart failure patients that were admitted to either the general medicine service or the cardiology service. And these are patients who are self-referred to the emergency department over a 10-year period and evaluated admission service by race, as well as different outcomes, which included 30-day readmissions. Um, and then we developed multivariate models with the outcome being admission to cardiology service to really understand um, if race is associated with differential admission service. And, you know, we adjusted for numerous potential demographic and clinical confounders, which they I say numerous because there are numerous, because I think as we moved through this process and people, you know, do have discomfort in accepting the presence of structural racism, there is a propensity for people to want to, you know, add more confounders or say it could be this, it could be this. But we did a really thorough inclusion of numerous different confounders. Um, including, you know, having seen a cardiologist at our institution within the past 12 months, insurance status, a long list of comorbidities, language, um, area deprivation index is what we use as our marker of socioeconomic status. And what we found is of over 3,000 admissions um, of just about 2,000 unique patients, um, the majority of which were white, that Black race and Latinx ethnicity were independently associated with lower odds of admission to cardiology or heart failure exacerbation care. Um, so black patients, black race was independently associated with a 9% lower rate of admission to cardiology and Latinx ethnicity with about a 17% lower odds. Um, and what was interesting in this work is by using this racial justice lens, we also discovered other inequities by age and gender. So we found that older patients, those greater than 75, were less likely to be admitted to cardiology for heart failure care, as well as female patients. Um, and, it, and it mattered for our cohort as well, because we found that while Black and Latinx race and ethnicity were not associated with increased readmissions, admission to cardiology was associated um, with much lower readmission rates and higher rates of cardiology follow-up. So we felt like taking this together that 
you know, really these findings are, are evidence that racial inequities and in, in admission patterns, you know, um, may contribute to the well-documented inequities in heart failure readmissions and outcomes in the U.S. Um, and so I think what's, what's important to note as well is that if you just took this at face value and from the beginning and said, you know, Black and Latinx patients have higher readmission rates, the tendency in our kind of research culture has been to attribute effects to race rather than racism um, and not really take a step back and look at the systemic drivers and the underlying root causes. Um, and so in this case, by really diving deep and looking at the structural factors, we found that it's really driven, these readmission patterns are really driven by differential admission services. Um, and so I, I think it was a, a great example of the House staff really coming together and saying, you know, we want to combat and dismantle some of these inequities that are present in our institution. And if I can just add one highlight to that, because I, and Lauren described it so beautifully and, and was the lead, one of the two lead authors on the, on the study. Um, but I just think it's so critical, um, again, that we recognize that the inequity, the racial inequities we see in outcomes like readmission um, are assumed to be some moral or biological failing of people of color. And this study is one of many more that shows actually this is about the racialized structuring of access to opportunity and goods of society by race. And that is that is the definition of structural racism, as I mentioned, from Kamara Jones. And it is demonstrated by the fact that Black and Latinx patients in this study did not have access to the specialized cardiology care. And I am a hospitalist myself at Brigham and Women's. And so our general medicine service, I love it to death. It's where it's come one, come all. But we don't have the same follow-up nurse practitioner services and medication management services and all the other um, services that come with being discharged from a cardiology service as opposed to a general medicine service. And that's a whole other conversation. But I just think that that point about uh, blaming the victim in a lot of cases in medicine and how we conceptualize racial inequities is really, really important to, uh, to emphasize. Yes. Now, you know, thank you for the description, Lauren. And, you know, thanks for chiming in, Michelle. You know, what has really fascinated me and struck me is um, the, the nuance um, with which you have brought this, uh, you know, topic to the fore. You know, I would admit, I, I don't think I ever have thought about this um, from a structural organizational standpoint, but you know clearly the manuscript sort of unraveled that concept, um, right? And then, and I'll have Arthi chime in, um, you know, for um, just just um, as a follow up to the uh, to the work that you've done, and also um, to what she is doing, uh, you know, on 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 the ground. But you know, a follow up question, Lauren, is. Have you since, you know, since the publication of this manuscript, I mean, is, I'm sure there's follow-up work that is happening and occurring and you would capture to, you know, decipher more data, but um, is, is there a plan? Um, so first of all, what interventions were done uh, to make a change um, with regard to what you found? Yeah, we actually have um, two large implementation projects that are on the ground, and one is actually in the second phase. Um, so one of those projects is targeting more the triage 
decision itself, which occurs in the emergency department. And so that project has just concluded data gathering, which included provider surveys of every provider involved with every heart failure admission to better understand why the admission service assignment was made. Um, And from that data, there's been ongoing focus groups, anti-racism training of all providers involved in the triage um, process with a plan to be to take that to formalize a more objective admission guideline criteria to try to mitigate some of the provider bias. So that's one piece. And then the other piece is, you know, we found in our study that the largest predictor of being admitted to cardiology was having a cardiologist at our institution, but that our our Black and Latinx patients aren't really making it to outpatient cardiology. And so we have started something called LEAP, which is a longitudinal equity action plan for all patients that are admitted with heart failure on the general medicine service. And this package includes, it's it's huge, but includes addressing social determinants of health, including rides to appointments, making sure that cardiology is engaged um, with that admission and that care but also more systematically setting up patients with cardiology care outpatients so that if we can't avoid inequity in that admission, that perhaps downstream that um, there will be less inequity in admission service assignment to get those patients linked into cardiology. So those are both um, in process now. We're starting to collect you know, some of the first data after you know, a few months or so. So it'll be interesting to see how we can try to, to mitigate these inequities that we've seen. Well, terrific work. Arti, why don't you um, talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, uh, the fight um, against the culture of racism and the kind of work that you've done as a follow-up to the, to the work that Michelle and Lauren just discussed. Absolutely. Well, Michelle and I work really closely in the campaign. So Michelle, please uh, chime in as well. One thing I wanted to add before, uh, it's really inspiring, Michelle and Lauren, to hear about the studies that you're doing. And I feel like one of the things that it really um, highlights to me is the importance of everyone having this ability to, to the structural racism analysis and health equity analysis. And that whenever you're building a new system or doing any basically making any type of um, change in an institution to first approach it from that lens of equity and structural racism. So I think I'm, I just think about that too, with like the, now the big, big pushes towards telehealth and how are we going to ensure um, equity um, and in access and, and other areas of equity around telehealth as well. But I'll, I'll move on and talk about the campaign against racism. So Michelle had mentioned Dr. Kamara Jones. And Dr. Kamara Jones has been a mentor to the Social Medicine Consortium and the Campaign Against Racism from the be- from the beginning. In fact, it was Dr. Jones' um, sort of call to the Social Medicine Consortium, um, I believe it was back in 2016 now, um, to start this global campaign against racism. And so it really started with, you know, groups of folks from all over the world who um, understood that there are some major, major um, structural and oppressive forces leading to health inequities and to figure out how can we actually take action on that. So a lot of people were starting to understand these concepts, but then what do we do? How do we move forward? How do we dismantle these systems and create the change that we want to see? 
Um, and so the campaign against racism was sort of formed. And I'll just read the, the goal of the campaign and this global campaign is to dismantle structural racism and its effects on health around the world because racism kills by supporting local actions, efforts, and networks which aim to improve the health and lives of those most affected by racism. Um, so between July of 2018 and September of 2019, we now have 23 chapters of the campaign across 10 countries. We do a lot of intensive anti-racism work, community organizing training, and really lift and, and really all work together to lift up the local actions that people are doing all around the world. Um, we have chapters in Haiti, Uganda, Rwanda, Zimbabwe, Palestine, Mexico, and um, at least 12 chapters in the United States, plus Navajo Nation in Washington, D.C. We have to something like 250 active members and 1,500 health professionals and allies that are engaged. And that was just in the first year. And so um, there's all sorts of different types of things that people are working on. Um, I can just speak to um, one thing that the, the Minnesota chapter, um, we are really working on uh, the intersection of housing, um, racism and health. So understanding that um, obviously you can't be healthy if you don't have safe and stable housing and taking that deeper into sort of what are the, the, the structures of racism that lead to housing inequity. For instance, in um, Minnesota, um, there was a group called Mapping Prejudice um, who really looked at, in Hennepin County, Minnesota, they looked at deeds um, for houses and found that almost every deed had something called a racial covenant in it, which is a very, very explicitly um, made statement that would say something like you have to be of the quote unquote Caucasian race to be able to uh, lease this property or to have a mortgage in this area. And then really linking that to how it then, um, how did that then lead to more sort of structurally racist housing policies, things like um, redlining that led to residential segregation that now lead to the fact that while the black, the African-American population in, um, in Minnesota is something like 5%, um, 40% of homeless individuals in um, Minnesota, which is highly concentrated in the metro area, are African-American and almost 38% are um indigenous folks, Native Indian American um, people. And so these are like real structural policies that then have led to um, homelessness, which leads to an increasing risk for um, a multitude of the uh, chronic health conditions like diabetes, hypertension, um, chronic stress leading to PTSD, mental health issues, and early and premature death. So really, really organizing and really working with other community organizations um, in the metro area to one, help um, health professionals understand that housing is a health equity issue and that structural racism is, a, is, is sort of the most upstream factor that's leading to these inequities and also um, teaching people how to advocate and organize around that. Um, and and I, I'll add that, you know, the sort of second phase of the campaign has been to add on a critique of capitalism because as we know, um, structural racism and racial capitalism are completely intertwined. They, um, they work together to create um, 
the systems of oppression that lead to health inequities. And, and Michelle, I didn't know if you wanted to add more specifically about capitalism. Yeah, no, I, you described it all so beautifully, Archie. Thank you for that. I, um, if it's okay, yeah, I'll just, I'll just hop in and, and add a couple points. I think it's, um, I think it's just really, really important for the campaign against racism as as well um, for us to recognize how un- uncommon it is for health providers to be engaging in this kind of work and, and how much it needs to happen more and how important it is to make sure that it's done with a lens of global solidarity and, and fights American exceptionalism. And I think that these two things are so, so important in what we're trying to do in the campaign against racism. And, and I, I think it's also not surprising, perhaps, that um, the work has evolved so much now that we're towards the end of our second year of the campaign and about to enter our third year. As RT mentioned, we moved from focusing only on structural racism to really looking at racial capitalism as a system. And um, many of the listeners probably um haven't heard too much about racial capitalism. It's not something that you learn in medical school for sure. Um, And it's not something that we unfortunately um, have spent enough time on, but um, that is why it's so important for health providers to recognize that our education in biomedicine is incomplete if it's not connected to the social and structural components and if it's not connected to the social sciences. Um, And a big part of what we say in the Campaign Against Racism is of course, that that health and healthcare is truly a social science, actually, um, and I and I think that that is hotly debated uh, by Stanley Goldfarb and others. But I do think it's important that we be clear, at least in our campaign, that that's how we see it, and that's what I think gives us more legitimacy to start to think about the social determinants of health and the structural determinants of health is by um, by extending our biomedical training beyond and into um, some of these other disciplines. And that's certainly what we've tried to do in the campaign against racism. And it's why racial capitalism has become a central um, theory for our our work and a guiding framework for how we act together. And racial capitalism is a a concept or a theory developed by Cedric Robinson. Um, I actually was born on the same day as Cedric Robinson. I feel very honored, November 5th, um, 41 years later than him, but but still nonetheless. Um, And Cedric Robinson wrote um, many, many, many things over the decades long um, career that he held. But um, racial capitalism as a theory essentially says that capitalism did not evolve as a clean break from feudalism, but capitalism actually evolved as an extension of a social arrangement of white people on the top and racial and ethnic minorities on the bottom. And that actually capitalism itself only is able to function if there is uh, an underclass that doesn't have ownership of capital. um, And that that uh, underclass consistently over history has been um, racial and ethnic minorities. And those might might have been racial and ethnic minorities uh, in Eastern Europe. But in the U.S. context, those are indigenous people, black people, um, Latinx people and others. And so um, we feel that racial capitalism truly describes the social arrangement 
um, not just in the U.S., but globally, um, because as, as we mentioned, the campaign against racism is about global solidarity, and half of our chapters are outside the U.S. and are bringing such a powerful analysis of racial capitalism and imperialism, but also in the, epi- the era of COVID-19 are helping us to remember, yes, it's bad in the U.S., but we can only come out on the other side of this pandemic if we're doing this work of of health equity um, with a lens of global solidarity and our current administration, um, to be quite frank and honest, and I'm sure everyone would agree, um, is the opposite of global solidarity. Um, In fact, we're already talking about vaccine nationalism and we're already talking about um, who gets access to remdesivir and who doesn't. Um, And so I think that that is a huge, huge issue. Um, really, really needs to be addressed. Um, and, and that's what we're trying to do in the campaign. Well, uh, you know, great. Um, th- that was just a, a terrific description uh, overall um, on the topic. I actually learned more than I ever have in any podcast that I've recorded so far. And I think, I believe this is episode 29. So thank you for um, educating me um, on uh, a topic which, uh, you know, clearly I need to do more reading on. Um, but you've certainly intrigued my interest, uh, you know, both um, from uh, from a clinician standpoint, you know, the inherent biases that we have, um, but also from an academic standpoint. Uh, and, you know, I would take these lessons very strongly as I uh, move forward um, and, uh, you know, conduct myself clinically, but also uh, come up with with projects. I know at the Cleveland Clinic we are uh, looking at social determinants of health uh, and how um, you know access to COVID nineteen testing was um, was differential and varied across uh, several counties uh, in Ohio. And you know we've we've come up with uh, some pretty profound uh, you know results and, and conclusions. Um, but you know with that you know I would um, I, w- I would conclude this episode. Uh, you know thank you all. Uh, you know, Arthi, Lauren, and Michelle for making the time and for spending uh, a Saturday um, late afternoon uh, with the uh, Parallax audience. Um, I'm, I'm sure there there will be a, a lot of uh, feedback and reaction on you know various social media accounts, uh, you know, primarily Twitter when this is uh, uh, you know hosted and and posted online. Um, but, you know, thanks again and um, I wish you all the best and, you know, wish you great luck and, and continued progress and very, very important work that all of you are doing. Thank you for being on the show. Welcome to Parallax by Anka Kalra, a podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology and the best from the U.S. Cardiology Review. Published every second Monday, Anka Kalra, MD, interventional cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, USA, speaks with legendary cardiologists, reviews late-breaking trials, and interviews authors of our latest and best US cardiology review articles. We call them hashtag audio articles. Parallax is the effect whereby the position or direction of an object appears to differ when viewed from different positions. So this podcast is your fix of reliable updates on all things cardiology by someone from a non-traditional background who is always looking at the industry from a new angle. Now, here's your host, Anka Kalra, MD.